Warning, don't choke to death on your diarrhea. Remember to always spit it out. And if it's in your mouth, don't fall asleep. Thousands of listeners of Seriously Wrong die every year of choking to death on their diarrhea. Don't become a statistic. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Seriously Wrong podcast. I am your co-host, Sean, and this is my co-host, Aaron. Hi. Uh, We do a show every week that's uh, pretty good. So uh, thanks for tuning in. Yeah, it's a pretty good show. This week we're doing a What to Think episode, which means we're going to talk about a bunch of different stuff. We're going to talk about some news. We're going to take a phone call. It's going to get wild. So um, well, before, buckle b- in. Before we get started, before we buckle in, while we're still unbuckled here, uh-huh. sitting around, how was oh, your week, Oh, I already Aaron? had my buckle, so oh, just let me take that. my buckle off. Okay, my yeah, buckle's bu- still undone. Buckles off. I wait till the last minute. I want the car to already be moving. <laughs> and then I'm like, all right, now I'll be safe. Yeah. And actually, uh, that caused a problem once when I got in a car accident leaving. A, I'll save this another for another time. We were leaving the parking lot and got in a car accident. My seatbelt wasn't on yet because I'm too much of a badass. Uh, I hit my face on the uh, windshield. That's a true story oh, no. <laughs> about my bad habit with your uh, face seat looks fine though. Uh, oh, thank thankfully. you. It was a while ago, so you might just it might have changed my face, but you just wouldn't know. Right. Um, I was just going to ask how how your week was. Uh, how was my week? My week was okay. I've just been working a lot. I've been watching a lot of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I kind of rearranged my life. I only work two days a week at my hotel maintenance job. I've been delivery driving in evenings, many of the evenings. Podcast stuff, doing the editing. We did an extra show last week. And yeah, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. That's that's been my life this week. This week I've got I've I've had this habit for a long time, Facebook. But this week it's gotten really bad. Like I've curbed my posting. Mm-hmm. Like I've really curbed the amount of like status updates I make, the amount of arguments I get in and stuff. But I keep on finding myself doing this monotonous, repetitive zombie-like scrolling. And like, even when I'm just, I just finish it. I've been scrolling for fucking 40 minutes. Yeah. And like not having fun either. <laughs> scrolling for like 40 minutes. 45 minutes. Maybe that'll make it fun. Maybe <laughs> just five I, more minutes. I put my phone down <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, what's on Facebook? And then I like do it again. And I, I've caught myself doing that a couple times this week of like the most mindless banal Facebooking. Welcome to the show, everyone. It's going to be a great one. One of the best. It's going to be one of the best. Someone please. So yeah, it's been uh, it's been a big week for murdering people with cars. I don't know if anyone else noticed that. Mm-hmm. I I've think got a Google my... <laughs> alert for killing people with cars, and it's been lighting up this week in Charlottesville, Virginia. This weekend, there was this huge neo-Nazi rally. And maybe not huge is the wrong word. Hugely publicized neo-Nazi rally that actually had about five hundred to a thousand neo-Nazis at it, who gathered from all over the world to show people how powerful they are, even though there's only five hundred of them. I mean, that's small compared to say like the women's march or yeah, even like counter demonstrations against Nazis. But three Nazis is a lot of Nazis. Yeah. The, what was the Women's March? Like half a million people, I believe, showed up Yeah, it was like the biggest march. march in history. Yeah, it was pretty huge. 
but 500 Nazis. So they were there. They're chanting things like, Jew will not replace us, <laughs> blood and soil. Uh, they're ostensibly there to protest this Robert E. Lee statue that was coming down. Uh, they didn't like that, but basically they were there to say, hey, we love white ethno states. There's a whole bunch of counter protests there, people who lived in the community, uh, church groups, uh, communist groups, workers groups, Antifa groups were there counter protesting. Uh, some people were trying to drive out of there in their cars. I'm not sure why they were in the middle of the protest with their cars. Seems like a dumb place to be. This guy got mad that he couldn't drive his car and ran into a bunch of the counter-protesters, injured 14 people, I believe, or maybe that was one of, no, that was one of the other car things. I think it was 19. Sure. 19 people and killed uh, one person. Heather Hare, may she rest in peace. A, uh, it, I've heard that she was associated with the IWW. That makes sense. They were one of the groups who were there. So yeah, really fucked up. I saw Christopher Cantwell on the news. He's one a neo-Nazi former ANCAP guy who exists, who actually debated once on a podcast about the Venus Project. He made the argument that this guy in the car did not initiate force. The force was initiated by protesters who hit the car. So, <laughs> so they hit his car, you know, therefore potentially damaging his property. That was the initiation of force. So he was just defending himself by driving a car into a crowd of people. Yeah, the uh, Christopher Cantwell guy sure is a huge sack of shit, isn't he? Yeah, even before he turned neo-Nazi, he was just notorious in the right-wing libertarian community for being a huge piece of shit. All right, and actually, I want to go back. So for those who watched the Vice Charlottesville special, this is significant to me, and I think it might be significant to you. I watched it. The main bald guy who talks out of the side of his mouth and is like a piece of shit for the whole Vice documentary, that dumbass the main, the moron. She's pouring milk on racist, his face. <laughs> pouring milk all over his face. Because um, he got maced. My boy Aaron, co-host Aaron over here, he debated Christopher Cantwell on a podcast once where Aaron was taking the position that we should have a perfect utopia forever <laughs> and use science and technology to like take care of everyone. Yeah. And he was taking the position that property is the most important thing in the world. And like, what else is a shit? Like, I don't know. Yeah, it, it, force. yeah, he was an ANCAP. So his argument against it was very much just like, it's never going to work. The only way you're going to get it to work is to murder everybody and communist Russia all over again. I tried to actually find the clips of it, but this podcast was hosted on YouTube and the person who was doing them was Storm Clouds Gathering. He's a YouTuber that people might know, righty kind of prepper guy. He apparently took all these podcasts down. They were called Fireside Chat, so I don't have the audio or I would oh, have like got sucks. some clips of it. Damn, um, that sucks. But it did happen. I went to hear that. And Christopher Cantwell got kicked off the podcast you were on. Yeah, for yelling he was and yelling? just being a nuisance. And like it was like a group podcast. There was like five or six people on there. So yeah, we had a little exchange about the Venus Project, but he was just like annoying everyone and eventually, yeah, got disconnected. It's interesting that Cantwell started as like non-aggression principle. And he's still like paying some lip service to that with the like, well, um, the non-initiation of force, the force was initiated by the protesters who hit the car. And so 
obvious equal proportional reaction is to murder people with your car (laughs) these right-wing guys (laughs) like that they got it you got to be careful how gleefully you indicate ahead of time that you're waiting for the chance to strike back like if if you're all gleefully like hey it's gonna be self-defense but i'm gonna fucking kill that motherfucker as soon as he touches me and like you're manic about it and shit right it just it seems you seem like the bad guy one interesting thing that happened in the wake of this was like immediately after it happened, there was this fake doxing that came from 4chan from Paul that named someone who was not the perpetrator as the perpetrator and spread this person's Facebook around. And this person was a left wing person. And so the narrative was, oh, this idiot Antifa showed up at the protest, thought he was running his car into neo-Nazis, killed one of his own. Turned out to absolutely not be true. The person who was driving the car was a white nationalist. His, yeah, and his like high school teacher said that he had a fascination with Hitler for like years and years. And, and, and sh- this shitty weird politics. Poor person who was falsely identified as the driver received death threats. His family received death threats. There was just this whole campaign against him in these few hours where it was mistakenly believed by people who believe things posted on 4chan that he was the perpetrator and like just random right-wing people on Facebook gleefully being like, ha ha ha, leftists, you did this to yourself. All wrong, all really stupid. Just an interesting like little fraction of time that existed for a few hours before the real identity of the driver was known. It's a crazy thing. Well, and with the way that these like internet reality tunnels are splitting up, these like news tunnels, I'm kind of worried that there's still people out there who might think... Oh, I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. I'm sure that story is still passing on like, oh, no, this whole media narrative about a a white nationalist Nazi doing that is just totally George Soros lies. And the real guy who did it is still walking free and is a Bernie supporter. Like, yeah, that happened also with the shooting at that Milo event where like I was running even after it was fully debunked at this Milo event uh, where there was like culture war skirmishes, flashpoints. It still is being perpetuated that that guy wasn't a real right winger, like either that he was a left winger who shot another left winger because they're idiots or that guy wasn't right wing enough to count as a right winger and stuff like that. Like there's this weird. Well, yeah, everyone wants to like de-team people who do bad things. They weren't actually on my team. It happens all the time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Wrong Boys, Umberto Echo's list of the 14 common features of fascism time. We're your hosts, the Wrong Boys. So Umberto Echo about these features said that they cannot be organized into a system, that many of them contradict each other and are also typical of other kinds of despotism or fanaticism, but it is enough for one of them to be present to allow the others, to allow fascism to coagulate around it. So it's kind of a loose-fitting structure of ideas that um, tend to breed each other and the result when they all kind of become present is, is fascism, even though they're kind of contradictory. Number one is the cult of tradition. One only has to look at the syllabus of every fascist movement to find the major traditionalist thinkers. The Nazi gnosis was nourished by traditionalist, syncretistic occult elements. Uh, syncretism is a union or attempted fusion of different religions, cultures, and philosophies. Yeah, that's kind of interesting that, I mean, I've heard Bookchin actually talks about 
Nazi mysticism as one of like the features of fascism also or like anti-democratic ideology is like occult magical thinking and stuff mm. that uh, that association chafes on me a little bit but I can definitely see how associating things with mystical themes can make people take them very seriously yeah, if you're talking about like symbolic categories that transcend time then it makes it a lot easier to believe that your leader is doing something like divinely natural it's only half of the story because like of course there's value in the past and in wisdom from the past but like it also just always needs to be looked at in terms of the current situation and you can't assume that every solution and every idea that has worked in the past is going to work now and you need to like constantly be synthesizing the past with the new in order to create a good society so that's what I think of when I think of the cult of tradition, only looking at one half of that dynamic system. One of the problems with the cult of tradition would be that it would not necessarily have an accurate view of the past. It's got a politically motivated view of the past, which I think is another distorting factor when you're talking about a society that's focused on tradition too much. Yeah, in order to idealize it to the extent that you do, you have to be mistaken about it in some sense. <laughs> uh, number two is the rejection of modernism. The Enlightenment, the age of reason, is seen as the beginning of modern depravity. In this sense, fascism can be defined as a rationalism. So again, in another category where Murray Bookchin is the opposite of fascism. Yeah, um, <laughs> whereas like definitely a lot of people on the right and left want to reject enlightenment thinking explicitly as problematic for different reasons on both sides but it also just reminded me that this matches with my thoughts that fascism is a response to is an emotional response to uh, anxieties and fears and less of a articulated understandable ideology well that matches something that um, umberto echo said about growing up under Mussolini was that he thought that fascism didn't have a coherent narrative or ideology so much as it had a coherent mode of dressing and like the outfit was more important than the ideology to fascists that's interesting but yeah this this particular protest was different in a way from a lot of the other sort of culture war protests that have been going on in how explicitly a Nazi protest it was. Like, usually I wouldn't call things like this a Nazi protest. I'd be like, oh, it was the alt-right and there's people there who are just in edgy liberals almost who just want to be offensive. But th this was, no, just Nazis. Like, Gavin McGinnis, who has this group called the Proud Boys you may have heard of who wants to like fight for Western civilization, like a very right wing guy. He yeah, refused to go to this because it was too Nazi. Just a quick summary of the Proud Boys. They're all about believing that Western society is better than other societies. They're all about only masturbating once a month. Um, <laughs> I didn't know. No, that's part of their thing. It's actually, um, yeah, not a terrible idea. And <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's probably my favorite part of the Proud Boys is only masturbating <laughs> once a month. They're also really into housewives. Oh, they, yeah. They traditional values. Yeah. yeah. I think during the initiation to become a Proud Boy, you need to know five cereals, like the names of five brands of cereal oh, that I you have to that. like list off while they're punching you or something like that. 
They're a strange group. What else with this event? I feel like we've talked about it a lot. Trump didn't condemn it, said there was violence on many sides, and he's been getting a lot of shit for that. Mm -hmm. uh, he just has refused to explicitly say Nazis are bad, white nationalism is bad, I'm not on white nationalism's side. He hasn't said that, and it's been a whole thing. Like, yeah, like Trump refused to unequivocally go on the attack against the white nationalists. He was criticized for that. He sort of did. He was condemning hate. And then he went off script again and started like equivocating both sides. And now like the rebel media in Canada, which is like a right wing news organization that is associated with actually Gavin McInnes worked for them. Hmm. Gavin McInnes is leaving the rebel media now at the end of the month. Also, their one host was fired because she actually went on a fascist podcast. So is Rebel uh, Media is trying to also, like Gavin McInnes, distinguish themselves from the full-on Nazis and say we're not them? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Rebel Media is trying to distance themselves. And then also Gavin McInnes is distancing himself from the Rebel Media because they're too tied to the Nazi shit because they had this host who went on a fascist podcast. I haven't actually heard the audio or anything, but from my understanding, she was pretty much playing along with uh, racist white nationalists and like talking to them as if there was just like a casual fun conversation. Yeah, just not challenging them. And then also that's actually having political consequences in Canada. Like um, Andrew Scheer, the leader of the Conservative Party, was pushed to distance himself from rebel media. A lot of conservative Canadian politicians have appeared on rebel media at different times. And I think about... Half of them at this point have denounced, denounced it, it in some way. Mm. Uh, the leader of the Conservative Party, Andrew Scheer, who we previously on the show called the crypto-fascist cabbage patch doll, he has said that he will not participate with the rebel media under their current editorial direction. So he left it kind of open. Yeah, it's interesting the way that this specific event and how explicitly Nazi it was has... It was called the Unite the Right rally, but it has maybe done the opposite and like forced the right to really like confront this element that has been growing within them uh, for some time and for people to kind of like take sides either for or against it. It's mm -hmm. been made so explicit through this event and those chants and this thing that happened that, yeah, they have to... The hardest choice in a, in a young conservative's life. <laughs> should I distance myself from literal Nazis or I should, should I continue providing cover for them? <laughs> or just join them flat out. Umberto echoes 14 common features of fascism. Number three... The cult of action for action's sake. Action being beautiful in itself, it must be taken before or without any previous reflection. Thinking is a form of emasculation. <laughs> uh, that's just funny. I guess it's kind of like shoot first, ask questions later as a fascist yeah, yeah, slogan. Or, or like the, <laughs> the, the idea of a man of action. He's a man who gets things done and takes control as a fascist archetype in some sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of action, but I think you should think before you do it. Like, I'm all, f I'm a cheerleader for action. Doing things, taking action, I'm all about that. So half agreement there. But then the other half that I disagree with is I think that you should think about your actions. You should think about them a lot. Actually, there's that funny uh, Zizek quote where he says, don't act, just think. <laughs> advice to people is to act less and think more <laughs> it seems so it seems so dark the opposite there <laughs>
Number four, disagreement is treason. The critical spirit makes distinctions, and to distinguish is a sign of modernism. In modern culture, the scientific community praises disagreement as a way to improve knowledge. So the fascist ideology stands against modern culture and, and science in this definition. Yeah, it almost seems like a common trait of any sort of group that internally enforces ideology very specific ideology i mean it's right there in the title disagreement is treason um that's a position that a lot of different ideologies can take but i think it's something that obviously needs to be present in fascism and it's a way of controlling the narrative like what distinctions can be made how are things framed things are framed in this one way and thinking about things in a lot of different ways and trying to see which one's right and parse those things out is a trap to turn you away from what's important which is what we're doing here because we're men of action so there you have it if you want to be an anti-fascist you've got to believe in science the structure of disagreement and um you know uh, some degree of plurality differences mingling yeah so that was one car murder that took place another car attack happened this week in paris when a man that the daily mail identified as a pot smoking security guard intentionally sped his car into a crowded terrace of a pizzeria killing a 12 year old girl and leaving 13 other people severely injured it was initially thought he might be charged with terrorism, but he will, will not be charged with terrorism. He is going to instead face trial for attempted mass murder, driving under the influence of drugs. The prosecutor who is leading the inquiry said that he has a persecution complex. He believes he's being followed and the police are investigating him. And one of the reasons that he put forward for his attack was that he said he would be arrested and so be safe in prison. So it just seemed like... Kind of a crazy guy. Crazy guy. Driving a car into a pizzeria. In yeah, I was going to say, usually pot-smoking security guards love pizza. They yeah. would never want to hurt pizza. Like, you know, you'd think the pot would, like, make you not want to drive your car into people. I feel like that's a strange characterization. The Daily Mail, maybe not so fair there, trying to implicate pot. I'm going to defend pot and say that this security guard did this not because he was a pot smoker, but for other reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the vast majority of pot smokers never ever drive their cars into crowds of people yeah and that's something that i think the the whole cannabis community can really agree on <laughs> yeah it's like that does not re represent us that's well, not us that's bad yeah disavow disavow i actually have talked to the leaders of the cannabis community in preparation for this show and they said we uniformly all condemn this this is not a, the face of cannabinism <laughs> no like the leader the leader leader of the cannabis movement said well to be fair on both sides here there's a lot of violence this 12 year old girl <laughs> she was eating she was eating pizza and uh i want some of that pizza because i got the munchies <laughs> wait so what were we talking about <laughs> what were we, were we talking about yeah. pizza that's yeah. that's what weed is like if anyone's wondering and the third car 
well, van, actually, in this case, attack happened in Barcelona. Uh, ISIS has taken credit for an attack in which a van was driven into a crowded, popular tourist area, killing 13 people and wounding over 100 more. So this was the worst one by far. Uh, this van really did some damage, killed 13 people and wounded 100. Musa Ukabir, believed to be the driver, fled from the attack on foot before hijacking a Ford Focus car, stabbing the driver driving through a checkpoint in order to make his escape. He traveled to a coastal resort in Spain called Cambril, where he and what the police described as four other jihadists were all shot dead in a confrontation with the authorities uh, last night, Friday night. So he was on the run for a while. It was like three days where they were like, he's still at large, but now they shot him and he's dead. And ISIS took credit for this attack. That reminds me of something you said on on chat last night, which is that when we call, like, there's so little people at this white nationalist rally overall, calling them vanilla ISIS is like an insult to ISIS. Because ISIS is just, there's so much more people in ISIS. Yeah, so so much much better organized. They're so much more of a threat. Yeah, even just if you take these single car attacks, who's better at killing people with motor vehicles? White nationalists only killed one person and injured 19. ISIS killed 13 people and wounded over 100. Yeah, this white nationalist was like a little virgin, like, who just (laughs) stomped on the the gas out of just like pure crowd. These leftists are being mean to my car. Yeah, he's like, (laughs) like, oh, I need to do this. I thought if I drove my car into the middle of a protest, everyone would respect my space and it would be fine, but they're not. (laughs) But, But then... Over in Barcelona, the ISIS Chad is just like, <laughs> just like wounding a hundred, yeah. leaving the scene, stabbing a guy. Yeah, what no, a badass! Definitely, definitely. If I was a white nationalist right now, I'd think about switching sides, and joining <laughs> ISIS. Yeah, <laughs> feels terrible. I'm like. It, Neo Nazis could learn something from ISIS. I'm just like I don't even want to <laughs> give them ideas. <laughs> But, Just um, to be perfectly clear, yeah, uh, we condemn. <laughs> the joke here is that they're both bad, but ISIS is better at being bad, and the neo Nazis will probably never be as good or as strong as ISIS because uh, they just don't have the support. Welcome to Keyboard Warrior Radio Theater. So I was just arguing with this guy in this group and he was all like, women shouldn't have any rights and I believe in a hierarchical, theocratic, tribal-centric, in-group, preference-loving state ruled with an iron fist to crush the weak and subjugate the rest of the world into our ideology. And I was like, who are you? Are you, wait, are you in ISIS or are you just like a white fascist? I know you're one of the two because you believe so many of the same things, but... It's hard to tell which one you are, and it depends which one you are, whether or not I'm scared of you. Because if you're in ISIS, I'm going to be really scared of you because, you know, ISIS, they're very powerful, they're very strong. And white ISIS, you know, white nationalists are weak. You can barely get 500 people to a rally. And yeah, but he, he wouldn't answer me. I don't, I don't know which one he was. Hey man, uh, well maybe it's like a bad idea to try to humiliate white nationalists and call them weak unless they act more like ISIS. I mean, like ISIS is one of the most horrifying organizations in the world. We probably don't want to accidentally in our tactics kind of goad right-wing people into worse positions, don't you think? 
this joke wasn't meant for them. This was meant for me and my friends. So I don't know if your argument really applies. I also think that pointing out their similarities undermines the credibility of white nationalists. And also, I just think it's true that they share a lot of common ideas and that one of them is much better at organizing than the other one. I'm just, I'd worry that it strategically could be a bad idea to back uh, these really misguided and I think ignorant people to back them into a corner and just try to humiliate them, even ironically. Sun Tzu said in The Art of War, always leave your enemies uh, room to escape. Don't corner them because if, if they're cornered, uh, they'll become desperate. They'll lash out and they'll actually be stronger. But if you give them an escape, you can always defeat them. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point from Sun Tzu you brought up there. Really opened my eyes. Yeah, I feel like this insight was a beautiful treasure that I'll always have with me and will cherish and will affect everything I do from now on. So, so thank you for that. No problem at all to share that. That's, I'm really grateful to hear that you appreciated it, the insight. I've always found it very useful myself from Sun Tzu. I'm curious now about your other political beliefs. Are they Sun Tzu related or just would, would you tell me about them? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to share. I'm always looking for other people to share my ideas with because I'm really passionate about them. I guess you could call me kind of a mixture between pragmatic strategy in the real world, achievable short-term goals, but then uh, utopian ideals at the heart of it and always a process of adaptation to develop even more radically utopian goals, principles, and outcome. So that manifests in different ways, sometimes prefigurative politics. Uh, I also participate in electoral politics. I'm a strong believer in the politics of post-scarcity, that we could take care of everyone on Earth at a, a greater standard of living than we've ever had in history. And yeah, have a beautiful society together and just try to live every day in uh, accordance with that and focus all my energy on, on bringing about that that reality someday in the future. So I'd say that's pretty much my politics. I'm very open to exactly how that might go, but it, I always try to keep that at the center. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. You know, I always think about how much better society would be if we had a lot of programs in place that took people who didn't have productive, gainful, enjoyable employment and, you know, helped them to discover things they were interested in, provided tools for them to learn new things, educational tools, experiential tools classes, seminars, work groups, uh, learning to work together in groups, problem solving uh, events and uh, just just life skills workshops, like permanent centers that should be open in every city and free for everyone to attend that just help people maximize their human potential. You know, I think that's that's something I've always been interested in. I'm wondering, do, do you think that would fit in with your thing and what you were saying? Absolutely. That sounds great. You know, I thought about some of that kind of stuff myself, too. How can we give people the tools to thrive in society rather than just uh, survive? I believe in humanity, not austerity. I believe in giving everyone the tools to maximize their potential and work together. So that's that's right up my alley. It, and it fits into some of the other stuff I've been thinking about, like abolishing the work week as we know it in favor of shorter work weeks making sure that there's things like universal basic income, that people have a guaranteed right to housing and healthcare and food, uh, local gardens, food towers, bullet trains, you know, using technology to, to liberate everyone. 
abolishing sexism, racism, classism, hierarchy, poor bashing, all of this 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 trash we can take out and build a perfect society together. I'm so excited to have a new, frankly, guardian of the well-being of others to work with. And, and that's you. So thank you. Oh, you know, th- thank you so much. You know, if if I'm a guardian, then you're definitely a guardian because you're just right on the money there with what you're saying. I think with ideas as great as ours, we are going to visit space like very soon, possibly within our technologically extended lifetimes, and we'll get to explore the galaxy and be guardians out there together. Couldn't agree more. It's such a pleasure to get to know you in this comment section. I think we're going to get a lot done together. Going to make a much better world. So nice to meet you. You're a guardian. Peace. And we'll see you next time for another episode of Keyboard Warrior Radio Theater. Umberto Echo's 14 Features of Fascism number 5, Fear of Difference. The first appeal of a fascist or prematurely fascist movement is an appeal against the intruders. Thus, fascism is racist by definition. Yeah, this one really hits home and seems like very central to what's going on right now with people being fascist in the world today. (laughs) Yeah, and like the kind of the slide towards fascist ideas is definitely being pushed along by um, fear of difference. Like yeah. Being I, an anti-fascist means being difference-philic. Yeah, in, we've talked about infophilia and infophobia before, mm-hmm. and difference is really where the information is. Like things you already know, things that are the same of you aren't... I mean, they're information in a sense, but they're not new information. Like an infophilic person would want more new information all the time, so they would want to be interacting with things that are different from them as much as possible. Number six, appeal to social frustration. One of the most typical features of the historical fascism was the appeal to a frustrated middle class, a class suffering from an economic crisis or feelings of political humiliation and frightened by the pressure of lower social groups. And I th- that's interesting. I feel it's like it's that is true now, but it's also they're appealing to the social frustration of the working class in a big way. Yeah, like the current kind of fascist movement has to do with both frustration of like low income people, but then also the perceived like political humiliation of white men as it's like a motivator. That's an interesting way to think about it. Good job, Umberto Echo. This is, a, this is these are smart ideas. So another interesting thing that has happened recently is the Mooch. One of my favorite guys. <laughs> I wasn't paying attention to the news at all during this period. I was camping and then on vacation. So it kind of just happened. It was so quick. It so, happened while I wasn't yeah, looking. I mean, we, we, we were, uh, when you were off camping, the show was off. We weren't doing news. But the Mooch really captured my imagination. He was hired for communications at the White House. But like his first day on the job, he gave this extremely vulgar interview where he said, like, unlike Steve Bannon, I'm not just trying to suck my own cock and I'm going to fucking kill all the leakers and all this stuff <laughs> like that. And then within 10 days, he was fired of the job. Very Like, I actually like that. Like, I like these colorful characters in the White House. It's like, it's interesting. It's, but it's it's weird because it's like I know there's these real world 
consequences. Yeah, and for, it's not great. For all, like, <laughs> that I really, really hate. Like, the White House has become this bizarre car crash kind of entertainment. Oh, yeah, it's, and just side note, like, Steve Bannon also is now gone, was fired. Yeah, and he's returning to Breitbart. And it's like, but the stuff that Steve Bannon says, too, it's also, like, super entertaining and fascinating stuff like wanting to be like lenin and overthrowing institutions and stuff yeah, yeah. i think he's got a head of lenin on his desk a he's lenin a revolutionary bust. yeah horseshoe theory is true but also so just before he was uh let go from the white house he said about these white nationalists and these protests Ethno-nationalism, it's losers. It's a fringe element. I think the media plays it up too much. These guys are a collection of clowns. I agree with them. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with Bannon on that. Yeah. Um, then he went on to say, the Democrats, the longer they talk about identity politics, I got them. I want to talk to them about racism every day. If the left is focused on race and identity and we go with economic nationalism, we can crush the Democrats. That's Bannon's view on the culture war right now is like Democrats talk about racism more and more. That's what my strategy relies on. Right. They talk about racism. They can butt heads with these 500 Nazis, blow them all out of proportion and talk about them all the time. Meanwhile, I'm going to get some economic nationalism done. That's his that's his take. Yeah. And I, so I'm, I don't bring this up to say. The Democrats shouldn't talk about racism or we're falling right into his trap or something. I'm generally skeptical that the bad guys will tell us how to defeat them. But I just thought it was an interesting quote. I found it thought provoking is like because I think that is probably how he actually sees it. And I think it is these culture war flashpoints around race and identity have definitely been used as a type of fuel for things like Breitbart and the alt-right to um, motivate their supporters, turn fence sitters into supporters and stuff like that. So I could totally see from Bannon's point of view that it's his wet dream for the Democrats to focus entirely on race and make their entire messaging about racial difference yeah racial difference gender differences orientation differences and just generally all those identity marker flashpoints whereas if you look at someone like bernie sanders sanders or corbyn mm -hmm. yeah um where you have these not exactly nationalist but like his nationalist as in capital n nationalism is like a ideology that's close to totalitarianism or like fascism and stuff but like small end nationalism, like all political parties and governments are kind of small end nationalists. They're not like anti-nationalist. They're not anarchist. Yeah, they're not about destroying the nation states as they exist. And yeah. So yeah, what sure. what is the word for that? Like, what is the word for what all political parties are that isn't quite nationalist? I mean, they're just they're just not anarchists. They're statists. I get. There's no word for it because it's just what most people are. But I mean, Bernie and Corbyn and like you said last week, Melanchon, like they are all a little bit more nationalist than free traders, I think I would say, at least on trade issues. Econo if we're talking about economic nationalism, Bernie is more of an economic nationalist than Hillary was or than any like any president has been for decades. Yeah, yeah. Well, like they're in being unabashedly socialist, they're focused on improving the well-being of the people within their country that need help yeah. more so than like the ideological neoliberal commitment to international trade open borders for trade specifically and, and this yeah. type of stuff yeah. 
Umbardo echoes list of the 14 common features of fascism. Number seven, the obsession with a plot. The followers must be besieged. The easiest way to solve the plot is the appeal to xenophobia. I don't know about what he, I actually don't understand what he's saying in the second part there, but the obsession with a plot really uh, rings true for me because I see, again, fascism is very rooted in narrative. I mean, like any ideologies like this, but it's a group of people all believing the same story. And fascism is a little bit self-conscious about that often, like needing to know their plot and needing to know who they are and who the good guys and bad guys are. And like, uh, it's a, the followers must be besieged. I guess that means. Oh, I think, I think the way that he means it, although that's an interesting alternative that you brought up, I think the way that he means it is like talking about more like belief in conspiracy theory, like a plot against you. Like for example, the, Jews are trying to replace us or mm-hmm. right. um, the New World Order conspiracy. And so the easiest way to solve this plot against us is through appeals to xenophobia. That's how I interpreted it. Makes sense. But they're also obsessed with like the plot of their own white nationalist story. <laughs> yeah, and not just that, but with consciously creating a plot, with like um, defining and propagating a narrative. Number eight. The enemy is both strong and weak. By a continuous shifting of rhetorical focus, the enemies are at the same time too strong and too weak. Um, this this is like super pro- profound, and I see this everywhere with fascism. Like for example, in anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, the Jews both control everything, and they're like rats. You know, like simultaneously, they're they're vermin, and they're also all powerful. You see this also with like the demonization of leftists by fascists as well like uh, left yeah leftists control the media they control government they control culture but at the same time we're always beating the leftists the leftists are so poorly organized they're such idiots etc yeah it always it even happens on the physical level of like oh the left is so violent they're they're being so terrible and hurting people and then like look at these weak little skinny snowflakes. fat snowflakes uh, who couldn't punch their way out of a paper bag but are also the most violent terrible threat that we've ever faced on the planet right now let's uh let's take a little break from the news and take a call from a listener you want to do that yeah let's do it Although this it's kind of news ish, old news ish, but it's a, it's an interesting moral question, I think, that this caller raises. Hey Ron boys. You guys are so inspirational and I think that you're brilliant and beautiful people. Should people be celebrating John McCain getting brain cancer? You would hope maybe we could agree no, but I've been arguing with people about this trying to get them to separate what I think they're saying is the positive aspect of it, which is essentially his removal from power for, from the means to that end, uh, which is him getting brain cancer. Yeah, I guess it kind of comes back to the guillotine thing. But yeah, maybe uh, is brain cancer good? That's my question. Uh, I'm running out of time, but I think your work on the podcast should be fully subsidized by the government and or Patreon itself, who I strongly implored to do so in one of the surveys they presented me. Uh, Thank you so much. 
So to answer his very last question first, I think it's an easy, the easiest place to start is that no, I don't think brain cancer is good. Well, in moderation, it can be good. <laughs> the struggle makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. It, uh, I don't want to take an extreme position. I think the <laughs> the golden mean is a good. No, I'm going to I'm going to take an extreme position. Brain cancer is bad. I'm going to take the more centrist, moderate position. It's sometimes good, sometimes bad. <laughs> But should we be celebrating when John McCain gets brain cancer? I I think to make this more interesting, be like, should we celebrate if like Christopher Cantwell had brain cancer? Yeah, Hitler, Hitler himself. If Hitler had had brain cancer. See, that makes it easy. You're just like, yes, that would have been great. If he had gotten brain cancer and died a year after assuming office, that probably would have been a good thing. I don't know. In, pol- in politics, sometimes there's a need for a type of catharsis kind of the 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 question of like expression based politics versus outcome based politics the outcome of celebrating john mccain having brain cancer is at the very most nothing like your best case scenario if you celebrate john mccain having brain, brain cancer, cancer nothing, nothing happens yeah the worst case scenario is that you make someone not like you or think that you're a, a bad person or, or, you, or think that every all leftists think this and they're all terrible or something like that. Yeah. It sounds ridiculous, but or like I see these people all the time. Build sympathy for, for John McCain as like, not only is he suffering with brain cancer, but he's being brutally bullied by, uh, right, about it. Right, right. But from the expression side, which I think is also a valid thing to want to do or to give other people space to do i think in the right context a good john mccain has brain cancer joke could fly with me oh yeah yeah sure i mean i could laugh about it in some context i don't i don't have a big hate on for john mccain like i mean his politics are my politics and the trump era has made some of these old conservatives seem a lot better but I mean, him dying, I don't know that he's going to be replaced by anyone who I love. Uh, The people who voted him in would likely vote in someone like him. He stopped the repeal of Obamacare, which I think was a good thing. He would like, you know, that last minute vote thing where he came in and voted against it. And I mean, it wasn't just him who stopped it, but he was one of the there was, there was people all, in the Senate who voted against it. I can't. I don't have the uh, the article on hand, but there was a letter written by John McCain to a constituent who didn't have health care coverage, covering their brain cancer, and John McCain advised them to like move out of state to get treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's like a little bit of an ironic kind of, especially with the health care vote thing around, and just the general Republican stance on health care right now. Um, like you can kind of get a schadenfreude out of that. Yeah, I didn't know that. People may celebrate John McCain or anyone who has damaged their lives and the lives of those they love suffering if they would like. However, let's not mistake that for um, political organizing. Yeah, I don't know. If it was a funny joke, I'm into it. If it was just like literally just ha ha ha, he has brain cancer. I'm so happy because I celebrate the suffering of others. Then I'm kind of not into it. Yeah, uh, and yeah, I don't know. It's whatever. And Thanks the, for the question. The joke, the, the the joke can't just be oh, I'm being a horrible person about this brain cancer thing. Like that's not funny enough. <laughs> well, no, the by joke itself. is I'm a great person because I'm laughing about this horrible person getting cancer. I'm not sure if there's a a word for the feeling that you should have when John McCain gets brain cancer. It shouldn't necessarily be grief. 
or happiness. Well, I mean, I just or, don't know him. That's why I wouldn't feel grief. Yeah. Uh, like if I felt grief for everyone who had brain cancer, I'd be grieving all the fucking time and be nonstop. But what is it? I feel like, honestly, I think the most honest answer is I feel completely 100% indifferent to the fact that John McCain has brain cancer. Mm. Like which is a which is a huge insult to John McCain, really. I mean it's it's not really. I would feel that way about most people getting brain cancer. If I think about his family or something, I would say, yeah, I feel some sympathy for his family. I feel I, I feel some sympathy for him. Like if I try to think like, oh, he's a human being and he has brain cancer, then like I can get some minor amount of sympathy coming up. But again, like I don't know him. He means very little to me. I just, yeah, don't it care. It reminds me, there's like a quote, I can't remember, maybe it's like a self-help person or something, but they said the opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is indifference. Right. Do you know who I'm talking about? No, but I think I've heard that before. That's actually what I feel like the right answer is when you're dealing with someone who is a political a political adversary in a way that they're you can say that they're actually damaging. Not just like we have a difference of opinion, but they've caused suffering through their political career, which I think there's a case to be made that John McCain is under that category. Yeah, I mean, but like I feel like there's a case to be made that every major politician <laughs> in the United States and Canada is has caused suffering sure, sure. Yeah, let's, college let's, let's just make the the moral question a little simpler for the sake of clarity let's say it's christopher cantwell okay who's yeah, got the I brain like cancer yeah right the right answer isn't glee at his brain cancer it's indifference to his suffering yeah whereas like you tell me a random person who looks like christopher cantwell talks like christopher cantwell <laughs> uh but is not a neo-nazi is not a neo-nazi and is just a normal guy who works at an office or something talks out of the side of his mouth like sports you tell me he's got brain cancer i'll, I'll give a little sympathy send a little sympathy that way but if he's a neo-nazi if he's a neo-nazi piece of shit trash who is making society worse and causing damage to people threatening violence like christopher cantwell does and he's just as aggressively horrible as christopher cantwell yeah the answer is indifference yeah yeah i can't say i would think too much about it if i heard he had brain cancer so i don't know yeah no i'm not i'm not in favor of celebrating it to answer your question thank you for calling us and asking us yeah and i also i feel an ickiness towards people who really do celebrate that type of thing oh yeah, yeah um, so i totally get where that question's coming from and i appreciate it being posed Umberto Echo's 14 Features of Fascism, number 9. Pacifism is trafficking with the enemy. For fascism, there is no struggle for life, but rather, life is lived for struggle. Yeah, this is something, this is a feature of the eternal fascism he's talking about that I see a lot on the left also, which is like this idea that you're with us or against us, or like this, a, a failure to fight is a alliance with the enemy. Like, yeah. there's been times on Facebook where you and I are arguing with people and like leftists have accused us of being Nazis because we were arguing with a Nazi. Yeah, rather than just banning the Nazi. So I guess that's a form of like Facebook group pacifism. We were like, we're not going to violently remove them from this space. We're going to try to talk to them, work this out. Mm -hmm. And yeah, pacifism is collaboration or trafficking with the enemy. But yeah, if you believe that a fight needs to happen like you're a white supremacist who thinks you need to walk the streets with a gun or an antifa person who's walking the streets with a bike lock <laughs> then you believe that the war 
is coming and anyone who's not there with you with another gun or with another bike lock is helping the enemy by not adding to your numbers. Number 10, contempt for the weak. Elitism is a typical aspect of any reactionary ideology. Oh yeah, well you certainly see this in modern crypto-fascism and fascism, the, the whole snowflake thing like we're talking about, and just like hatred for the disabled, like the belief in like this crude social Darwinism and stuff like that. It's definitely an undercurrent here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but again, definitely. I'm reminded by a prominent interaction with the leftist. I mean, he later turned out to be a huge piece of shit. We covered this on an earlier episode. <laughs> But he had this clear contempt for the weak. And I remember at the time, I was like, you sound really fascist. And he's like, I'm not fascist, I'm communist. Like, horseshoe theory, you're a liberal. (laughs) And I was like, okay, well, I'll let time tell. And then it turned out that he's a really horrible person. Yeah, the contempt for the weak thing is like... In some sense, I want to be like, it's not It's not really on the left, because the left is so much about taking care of the weak, but they definitely have, the, the, the elitism anyway is definitely present in a lot of it, and like maybe there's a contempt for the intellectually weak in this sort of structural setup of these really complex academic ideas that if you don't agree with them right away, you're a horrible piece of shit. And they're like, they're not easy ideas to grasp, some of them. So I see a certain kind of contempt for the weak in that. Mm-hmm. I should also specify this one specific person doesn't represent the left. I'm not saying like, oh, the left is fascist too or something. It just, the contempt for the weak is definitely a reactionary thing. And when it shows up in the left, it's a deviation from good boy leftism. This episode is brought to you by the Citizens Action Militia's Committee on the Question of Increasing the Amount of Brain Cancer in the World, Kakibka. At Kakibka, we believe that brain cancer is amazing and an unalloyed good in the world. Watching people slowly deteriorate in health as they lose the functions of their minds is just one of the most amazing, peachy, beautiful experiences Uh, we can imagine and so we're hoping to create a whole lot more of that every time i hear that a new person has been diagnosed with brain cancer i can't stop smiling you just couldn't turn my lips down if you tried unfortunately my attempts to give brain cancer to myself so far have not been successful but i'm going to keep trying to give brain cancer to me and everyone else and that's what kakibka is about there's too many people in the world And not only do I want to see them dead, but I want to see them suffer horribly, specifically with brain cancer. Kakipka, a proud sponsor of the Seriously Wrong podcast. Other news this week, the Department of Justice is demanding that popular web hosting company DreamHost hand over 1.3 million visitor IP addresses along with contact information, email content, and photos of thousands of people who had been registered for the website, disruptj20.org. DisruptJ20 was a organizational flashpoint for the protests against the inauguration of Donald Trump. So that was like the protests that happened on the day, the protests that uh, Richard Spencer was punched at. Those protests were the Disrupt J20 protests. And so for whatever reason, it's kind of unclear. The Department of Justice is asking to have everyone who visited that site 
have their private information turned over to them. DreamHost is going to court rather than hand over the information, saying that the request is a highly untargeted demand that chills free association and the right to free speech and expression afforded by the Constitution. So good on DreamHost for that, because that's pretty scary that they want to scoop up literally everyone who visited a website about protesting J20, mm-hmm. January 20th, Inauguration Day. In light of like militias and stuff in Charlottesville, like it seems like if you're going to use your extreme state surveillance powers on any group of plucky <laughs> anti-establishment <laughs> activists, yeah, I'd go with the Nazis. I yeah. would, I would, I, I would mean, target I mean, them for surveillance. Even if you want to target Antifa and you're like, Antifa is the real threat. They're hitting people with bike locks. They're macing girls with I Bitcoin hats or whatever, make Bitcoin great again hats. They're, they are doing some violence. So let's, let's get a list of them. The way to get a list of them is not to get 1.3 million visitor IP addresses from the disruptj20.org website. Like you have to find a different way to get at these people because those 1.3 million people are not the small percentage of leftist people who identify as Antifa and also believe in violent tactics. Like, I'm not saying I think the government should (laughs) collect information on those people, but if they think they should, and that's what they're trying to do, this is a terrible way to do it. Um, So... The Philippines has escalated its already deadly war on drugs, executing at least 80 people in the past week suspected of committing drug crimes and arresting hundreds more in what the police have described as a one-time big push to curb the narcotics trade and street crime. Filipino President Rodrigo Duterte said this week that the escalation and the deaths of 32 people that happened on the day that he made the statements were, quote, a blessing. And he added, let's kill another 32 every day. Maybe we can reduce what ails this country. Later in the week, he said that he would not just pardon police officers who killed these drug offenders during the anti-narcotics campaign, but he would also promote them. So yeah, that whole Philippine drug war thing is fucking crazy. I think what the Philippines and Mexico are probably the two biggest places right now still like really pushing the drug war. I mean, obviously the United States is doing it too, but this is just like just killing people in the streets for being involved potentially. Like there's no trials. I mean, I'm assuming the people who are arrested are going to trial, but killing 80 people in a week and this wasn't like one big event they're just they're just constantly on the offensive against these people and they're shooting them down and murdering them and their president is like hey we're going to promote them they're doing great this was a blessing that 32 people died today so i mean he needs to listen to our drug wars episodes first of all president duterte president duterte has a lot of advice to take from us on the drug war for if sure. anyone has his email address just shoot him some links to those three episodes drug wars parts one two and three we have three of them kind of star uh, wars themed yeah anti-drug war episodes are pretty good yeah I a lot of duterte good information really like it. that duterte might need to maybe like change his position. I'm sure he's a reasonable man. If he was just heard the arguments coming from our mouths, he would listen, understand and change. But because well, we need to do the opposite of murdering drug addicts to solve. Yeah, <laughs> we actually we need to give drug users dignified lives, give them the resources they need to not just survive, but to thrive. And we need to give them 
paths away from dependent lifestyles? I think the majority of the people being killed are not just like, you know, junkies on the streets. They're more the people involved in the selling and the gangs that crop up around these kinds of black markets. Inevitably, the way to dismantle and disempower those gangs is to cut off their funding source. And the way that you cut off their funding source is by not letting them sell drugs anymore, not by making it illegal, but by making it legal. Therefore, they're out of the business and people can get their drugs from legal places. They can be offered treatment. They know what they're getting. Everyone knows these arguments. Not everyone, but people listening to the show probably do. Drug wars are bad. All this violence is evidence of that. Uh, the fact that it's not getting better by killing all these people is evidence of that. And I hope that this stops soon because it's a fucking tragedy. Iran's newly elected president, Hassan Rouhani, has threatened to pull out of the 2015 nuclear deal within hours of the when the statement was made on Tuesday if the United States continues to impose new sanctions on the country. He issued the warning in a televised speech to Iran's parliament, calling the USA an unreliable partner, citing Trump's pulling out of the Paris Agreement and TPP and his call to renegotiate NAFTA. The actions of the U.S. regarding the implementation of the nuclear deal show that the U.S. cannot be trusted, Rouhani said. The world should know that any abrogation pertaining to the agreement would face the unanimous reaction of the nation and the government of Iran. Uh, some kind of a wordy way there of saying, if Trump doesn't stick to the deal we made, we're going to start building nuclear weapons again. So that's scary. Trump's let's call it erratic nature, kind of chafing at these nuclear tensions is also really scary and shitty. Hopefully this remains just talk and the nuclear deal stays intact and Iran doesn't build nukes and Vancouver or any other city in the world, but especially Vancouver, uh, never gets nuked. So let's all, let's all pray for that. It's so weird that... Trump or like anyone is in charge of the question of like whether or not to launch nukes, that that authority exists in right. the first place. It, it should just be that no one's in charge of that because the answer is that no, we're not launching nukes. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I don't like, I'm, I don't even have a utopian alternative really, but it's just really bizarre that there's people out there who technically have the choice to incite and start nuclear war. Yeah. And my final story of the day is that this Thursday, a settlement was announced in a lawsuit that was brought by the American Civil Liberties Union against two psychologists who were involved in designing the CIA's harsh, quote, enhanced interrogation program used in the post 9-11 war on terror, uh, including most famously the tactic of waterboarding suspects. Now, while the terms of the settlement have not been made public, the ACLU has stated that this was a historic victory, saying it was the first time that the CIA or any of its private contractors have been held accountable for the torturing of suspects that occurred in the war on terror and then is incurring in the war on terror. So it's um, kind of nice. They, it doesn't seem like they were found guilty saying a settlement, but maybe the settlement wasn't in their favor, even though we don't have the details of the settlement. 
Umbardo echoes list of the 14 common features of fascism. Number 11. Everybody is educated to become a hero. In fascist ideology, heroism is the norm. The cult of heroism is strictly linked with the cult of death. Yeah, until I read the last sentence of that, I was a little bit like, mm, I don't know about this one. I feel like it's good like to want to be a hero. But the idea of it being linked to the cult of death, to me, brings to mind images of like war and fighting and bringing it back into this idea of like conflict and us versus them. So like you need to be a hero in the war that we're going to wage. Uh, not you need to be a hero in a metaphorical sense of like accomplishing the thing you need to accomplish in your life and being the best version of yourself you can be and overcoming the obstacles that exist in your path and stuff like that like because I'm like oh yeah no everyone should be a hero but that's what I think of when I hear being a hero mm -hmm. and maybe what he's talking about I think is you know killing people with a sword <laughs> and also maybe one of the tensions there is the idea that it's the norm so like if you don't meet the it's not that having heroes isn't good like there could be heroes saving lives helping people amazing people in society but that that's not expected of anyone like you're not a failure if you're not a hero you're not like a weak bad person if you're not a hero like not everyone is a hero uh number 12 machismo and weaponry Machismo implies both disdain for women and intolerance and condemnation of non-standard sexual habits, from chastity to homosexuality. Interesting, it's tied to weaponry, but partially about sexuality. Uh, you, well, you definitely see the disdain for women uh, and intolerance and condemnation of non-standard sexual habits on current fascism. That's like very prominent right now. Maybe not chastity so much. There's, a, I feel like there's a bit of an incel fascist connection going on right now. But there's also within the incel community is this like dichotomous Chad virgin meme going around right now. And it's like they may be self-identified incels, but they're aspiring or maybe not even aspiring because a lot of them have given up, but are uh, <laughs> venerating these machismo examples and it also like shows how they're not heroes and how they're not the norm and they're bad but anyway it's yeah, it's interesting yeah the with with the appeals to degeneracy and the discourse of like virgins and chads and this type of stuff like it's it almost feels like the modern fascist movement was written according to this document like someone read this and they're like oh i'm gonna start a new fascist movement i'll just use all these like, yeah, yeah, oh, and pretty on the nose. It's a it, this is a good one too because it's interesting. Like a lot of these, I've kind of been like, oh, you know, people on all sides do this, but some of them, like, well, a specific kind of contempt for the weak, and this one for sure, the machismo and weaponry, and also um, the fear of difference. There, there's certain ones that are more specific, and this is one of the most specific ones. Like if you're saying all these things need to be present in some sense for it to be a fascism, I feel like this is one of the main ones that isn't also shared by other ideologies as much. Yeah, and I think it would be naive as someone in any political spectrum to say, well, my side is so above fascism that we would never ever have any of us reflect any features of it. Like, it's not like 
one side of this broad political spectrum is this pure thing that never yeah right, right, right. <laughs> that never ever has folly and the other is where all the folly goes yeah that's one of the key like shitty ways people think about things yeah. all the folly is on that side yeah anytime that you someone on your side has folly it's a sign that they were suddenly from the other side for a minute <laughs> they were suddenly from the other side all along oh but now they're cool again because they're agreeing with me one other thing that just reminded me of the aclu charlottesville the white nationalist permits were revoked and the aclu went in on behalf of the nazis to fight for their freedom of speech and got the permits reinstated so that the protest could go on and so i've been seeing a lot of hate for the aclu based on that and i mean yeah fine i can see why people wouldn't be a fan of that action. But all I just thought about it was like, damn, they're like hardcore about just like, no, I don't care who the fuck it is. We have these principles and we stand by it. It's pretty based, pretty based to the ACLU. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on this stuff, but I think I heard someone say that the reason it's important to do that is because a lot of these legal conflicts rely on precedent. And yeah, if Nazis can be turned down, then anyone can be yeah well and that's also i mean the the overall charlottesville thing i mean there's some weird contradictions to to grapple with there in that like ultimately even with a well-organized counter demonstration that's designed to prevent giving nazis public space or at least unquestioned public space without yeah i mean like they're gonna have the space either way because they'll be there physically but what i'm saying is to have the opposition also have public space. Yeah. So like their rally getting shut down ultimately was the result of like police interference and like the state of emergency being declared and the police enforcing that they weren't allowed to have a rally. And I've, I've heard it said that uh, leftist demonstrators actually were intentionally trying to get the entire protest shut down by participating in the escalation of violence in a way that would give the police no choice but to shut down the rally overall because it would be unsafe to happen in public but it's just it's interesting to like i'm i'm open-minded enough to say like okay people who are critical of the police as an institution can still use police as a tool in furthering their ends but like it's just kind of a weird paradox and also like another thing that happened is like stormfront lost their domain name and like Breitbart is losing advertisers. These are all like structures of authority that are really, really essential to this kind of process that's been happening of the alt-right getting shut out and shut down and fought. Like police are part of it, domain registrars and advertisers, you know, thousands of dollars of revenue. Yeah, the Daily Stormer had to switch to a Russian domain registrar after... GoDaddy and Google both kicked them off after they wrote an article calling Heather, what was her last name? The girl who died? Heather Heyer. Heather Heyer, um, fat, basically. That was like their response to her being murdered. Yeah. She um, was fat. There's just, it's, it's interesting where you have these institutional authorities that are such key tools in the fight against fascism right now. It's I've just it's one of the reasons I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around all this stuff as a whole and like just having a single coherent directional opinion of it because I feel like it's just so complex. Like part of denying fascist public space, if you accept that as something that uh, needs to be done, is pretty much always going to be the police. Like unless the police are around, then there's going to be violence and 
yeah, people just, dying and, <laughs> and being badly hurt. Yeah. Like we can't just punch each other out in the street. I mean, we can, but. Well, not just punching cars, knives, bike locks, guns. Like we could just have war in the street. That could be an option until we kill the thousands <laughs> Nazis or whatever that exists. I'm like, I'm sure there's people who think that that's a lovely idea. Probably people listening to this podcast who think that's a lovely idea, but um, I don't think it's a lovely idea. Yeah, no, I'm, I don't think that street brawls and street violence are going to solve this. I don't know exactly what will. You don't have the answer? No. You don't I'm... have the answer for solving this whole mm-hmm. thing? Sean, I just assumed if someone would. Nope, sorry, I don't. It was you. But something, I, I, an answer that I do have, something I think that we should all categorically reject is when people act like fighting fascism is an easy, simple, one direction thing. If it's as simple as being nice or being violent and adversarial or something like that. Because the fact of the matter is no tactic that we've ever used has ever eradicated fascism. Fascism is still here today. We've tried a lot of things throughout history. We went to war with fascists, with militaries. We've fought them in the street. We've fought them with ideas. We've denied them platforms. We've given them platforms. The whole spectrum, the whole gamut. We've tried to argue with them. We've tried to fight them. We've shot at them with guns. We've tried to show them the error of their ways. And in different ways, we can say, oh, look, we made a little bit of progress against fascism here, or there used to be all these fascists, and then a bunch of them got killed, and there was less fascists. Or here's some fascists that we argued with, and we actually convinced them to renounce their ideas, and now they've rejoined society as regular human beings, and they look back on that period of their life with confusion and embarrassment. So we can say within narrow bands, we fought fascism and had successes and battles, but we've never won the war against fascism. It's still here today. So anyone who claims that defeating fascism is as simple as doing one thing or another, I think we should be very skeptical of that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's the real world is exceedingly complex. And if this question had an easy answer, people would know what it was. Like the easy answer to how to make peanut butter cookies is pretty easy. You type it into Google. There's like some variations on a theme on the recipe, but people pretty much know how to make peanut butter cookies, how to eradicate fascism. Lots of people have successfully made peanut butter cookies. As you just pointed out, nobody has successfully eradicated fascism. So it's just not an easy answer. There isn't one. People who say that they have one are either lying or ignorant and yeah this is like one of the hardest questions in the world and we've been grappling with it for so close to a century if not over a century i don't know when fascism was invented the 20s or yeah it depends i guess and i mean i'm sure it had roots in other similar ideas from the past and whatever so yeah it's been going on for a long time and punching people in the streets isn't going to eradicate it yeah, well, because, okay, so if we say fascists are having a rally at this time in this place, we're going to do all we can to push them out and show them that they can't go in public and have speeches and rallies and marches. A friend of mine suggested that the reason that that has such potency to leftists is stopping them from having marches mm-hmm. is because a lot of leftist political imagination starts and ends with having rallies. Like right, what right. we do is have rallies and go in the streets, and that's how we change the world. They, they're completely blind to the fact that it does almost nothing. That like when you have a rally saying our president is bad, it doesn't matter if it's the biggest rally in the world, the president doesn't give a fuck. Like that protest 
doesn't actually do that much in itself. But because the ideology of like this grassroots leftism is that that does everything. That is the world. That is what politics is. So in order for, if, for a fascist to do that and for us to let them, well, we're letting them affect the world. We're right, letting them right, be right. as powerful as we are. But the reality is, I think that even if you stop them from having marches, like I'm uncomfortable with Nazi marches. I wish they weren't happening and I'm open to stopping them. But they don't do the recruiting in person. I think it's pretty unambiguously the reality right now that they do the recruiting online. So the only way that we can stop them from doing recruiting online is direct collaboration with Twitter, Facebook, major web hosting providers, and to push them onto the darknet. And then even then, they're still going to be on the darknet. And the only way we can deal with them after that is collaboration with police, military, government, <laughs> which are all things that leftists don't want to generally do i mean there's some leftists who are open to it but yeah it's interesting because it's not whether or not we're giving them public space at all it's what type of public space we're giving them and what type of attention we're giving them so and I, i've got more questions than answers here but it's it it really it, it boggles the mind and i think we should also not just be punching fascists as individuals but we need to f have strategies for how do we punch fascism as a concept how do we punch the eternal fascism <laughs> you know like i want to punch eternal fascism in the space in the in the face in the space that's psychedelic <laughs> yeah i, I want to punch the concept the overarching damaging cloud of fascism in the face and how we do that is more complicated than just street violence which i think is more on the catharsis expression-based politics side which is totally valid like i, I, I loathe I, racism what, I, one I, thing on this topic that i want to say that what you've just been saying reminded me of was something i heard a friend say which was that fascism itself is very much based in what were you just calling expression politics it's a based in an emotional reaction more so than someone who arrived at an ideology because they sat and looked at political ideologies and logicked it out and was like this is the best one it's a visceral fear-based in-group ideology and I think that perhaps the best way to dealing with it is looking at it as a phenomena based on that, looking at why it's happening, what is causing those emotions and that fear, and how can we begin to heal that pain and that schism and begin to make these ideas less attractive to people, either by presenting alternative ideas that address the same emotional complaints. So like, for example, switching from a, a race discourse to a class discourse as a way to like address the underlying anxiety, but in a more productive way. So like moving from scapegoats to the roots of problems, like anger at individual immigrants being moved into structural problems with neoliberalism. Yep. Yeah, that kind of stuff. All right. Well, thanks for having me, everyone. And, oh, whoa, who is this guy in the front row? He's wearing a, a white polo shirt and, uh, and khakis. I can't, I can't tell if this guy is going golfing or if he wants to kill me and my friends. That look is out, sir. I mean, I'm just fucking with you, but I literally am not 100% sure. Do you guys see those tiki torch nerds down in Charlottesville? That, that is the most intimidating luau I've ever seen in my life. I'm not even kidding. Actually, well, I mean, it's not that intimidating. I mean, it was a little intimidating first because, you know, Nazis in, uh, in America, it's, it's kind of crazy. 
But, but if you look at the pictures, I mean, they're just a bunch of idiots wearing polo shirts and, and carrying torches. It, it looks like a stepdad convention. They're all marching down the street and chanting, Stepson will empty the dishwasher. Stepson will empty the dishwasher. It is, it's crazy, man. It's wild. Blood and soil? Are, are, are you listing the things that Tide Brand Soap got out of your polo shirt? Uh... Jews will not replace you? I mean, what are you talking about? That makes no, that's a really incoherent fear. You sound like a crazy, paranoid monster. Okay, yeah, Jews will not replace you. What's your point? Like, you know, the list of things that won't replace you is, is pretty much infinite, you know? Cars will not replace you. Cactus will not replace you. Your wife's new husband will not replace you. He never could. No matter how hard she tries, you know? Do you, you really think that Jews control everything? I mean... Seriously. Jews can't even control a four-door sedan. Have you ever went driving with a Jew? It's like, whoa, slow down. Whoa, where are you going? That's swerving. Whoa. Okay, well, I just, okay, just just to be clear, just to, uh, for some clarity of purpose here, uh, I condemn an anti-Semitic stereotypes. I don't think there's any evidence for Jewish people being bad at driving. It's, it's just a gag, but just to make sure that we're on the same page. Like, I've got my anecdotes, but that's the end of it. Um... Yeah, anti-Semitic paranoia should be denounced fully, and I disavow any sort of association. My friend was saying to me the other day, like, hey, they can, uh, they can have black pride. How come we can't have white pride? He's like, huh? They have black pride, but I don't get white pride? Huh? And so, yeah, I told him, uh, well, white pride was invented by the ruling class to uh, make poor white workers identify with the wealthy landowners, right? And so then the poor white workers would side with the wealthy landowners against the poor people of color who were closer allies they had more in common with. And I, so I said, the reason we don't have white pride, I mean, not only is that a bit of murderous ideology associated with horrific crimes that I, I couldn't even begin to describe, but... To have white pride is unabashedly selling out your brothers and sisters to those who would destroy and dominate you. And he said, he's like, oh, okay. So yeah, he changed his mind on that. Uh, so yeah, thanks everyone. Uh, you've been a great audience tonight. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for giving me a platform. And um, yeah, um, I roundly denounce anti-Semitic paranoia. It's, 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 um, that way of thinking isn't well. It's, 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 ba it's detrimental for society. Thank you. You've been great. Umberto Eco's list of 14 features of fascism. Number 13, selective populism. There is in our future a TV or internet populism in which the emotional response of a selected group of citizens can be presented and accepted as the voice of the people. And, and this, this essay is from 1995. So it's really interesting how fucking accurate it is and how yeah, he was like, yeah. yeah, on the internet, they're gonna- Internet populism. Yeah. Uh, it's a, <laughs> white people have been like this for too long and white people are standing up for themselves and white people are taking things back. And it's like, well, actually you got like 500 people. Yeah, and you're like 0.001% of white people. And most white people hate what you're saying. It makes them feel racist to hear. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting that like the idea that white people hearing other white people be racist makes them not only scared of being racist but dislike being white but one of the things that these racists hate so much is self-hating white people but it's like they're making white people hate themselves by being such shit 
Yeah. Well, I don't think Charlottesville inspired a lot of white pride from people who <laughs> Most are white Nazis. People. Yeah. 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 Because people like to talk about, and I like to talk about how, say, anti-white rhetoric on the left is fueling white nationalism, but like white nationalism also just fuels a lot of anti-white rhetoric. It's a circle. It's not just like uh, blame one side or the other. Mm-hmm. Well, it does. It makes you kind of uncomfortable and embarrassed to be part of to be in any way connected to a group of people that's so horrifically monstrous and yeah and, well and then you like wonder why so many white people hate white people or dis white people and you're like oh, come on guys stop <laughs> stop doing this shit in the name of all white people yeah it's really bumming us out this fucking selective populism <laughs> they're talking in the name of all white people this shit that make us embarrassed to be white people you gotta stop Number 14, fascism speaks new speak. All the Nazi or fascist school books made use of an impoverished vocabulary and an elementary syntax in order to limit the instruments for complex and critical reasoning. Yeah, again, this is a very, like, just any, like, ideological thing. You get into the the jargon and the new speak of it, and it comes with being taken in by a way of thought. But the fact that he talks about it being simple and impoverished, because I think some ideologies go with the overly complex and like very sophisticated ideas mm-hmm. that's elitist, as I was saying before, but the use of a like simple, impoverished vocabulary, elementary syntax, I think makes the narrative building that they're doing very powerful and why it's possible to spread it easily. Yeah, his definition of newspeak here also makes me, you know, you see right-wing people talking about social justice as like newspeak, but it makes me realize that there's an argument to be made that it's actually the kind of um, academic jargon of social justice is the opposite of newspeak because it's introducing extra complexity into language. It's introducing more choice in how we speak. It's introducing a wider spectrum of vocabulary with complex long words, whereas newspeak was boiling things down to like base simple words and then using modifiers to either say like (laughs) double plus i'm good or whatever right right so yeah that's a that about summarizes the 14 features of umberto echo's definition of fascism or er fascism as he called it the underlying uh, fascism really interesting thanks umberto he's a longtime friend of the show thanks for sending that in umberto How do you neutralize a fascist? There's only a limited amount. There's You can physically kill them, which is what you would do if you're at like war with a fascist country or something. You can shame fascists into not going in public and not expressing their ideas. Yeah, it's difficult too because there's the potential of blowback and like you try to shame people and it just makes them more proud and brash yeah. and open. Yeah, especially when you're dealing with groups that their outsider status, their marginal status is part of their identity. Yeah. So like uh, the alt-right refers to everyone as like normies, like people who oppose racism to them are normies, whereas like they're the genius subgroup that sees that uh, hating racism is dumb or whatever. So yeah, either it could be shame, it could be other things. And then the, the last one, and I think the most challenging ones, if you're coming at politics from a very 
adversarial point of view uh, is the rehabilitative aspect of like turning people from fascists into not fascists, which has got a set of strategies embedded in it, implications, questions, and challenges. Like if we want to talk about really defeating fascism permanently, which I think is an essential project towards our shared project of 10,000 years of world peace, which we've promised by episode 1000, we're going to figure it all out. Yep. Get the 10,000. Yeah. We should just start referring to it. For, as uh, short as the 10,000. The 10,000. We're all, <laughs> we're just working on the 10,000. Um, <laughs> I think for the most part, literal murder isn't going to be necessary, but it could be necessary if say like a powerful fascist nation state rose up again and we had to go to war with them um, or militias or something like that within cities fascist militias and god forbid it has to be on the table how do we prevent it from spreading i think we got to collaborate with facebook twitter major web hosting companies the police and the military (laughs) i know that's like super um cringe inducing for a lot of like anarchists and leftists to, to think about but i think it's one of the two if we were serious about combating fascism, it, i think like saying it is cringe inducing but i don't think many of them would have a problem if it was happening because i mean it does happen in small ways already and they love it yeah like, like they love it when people get kicked off facebook for using the n-word they love it when people have their hosting taken down like what happened to the daily stormer yeah so I mean, just don't say that's what the plan is, but that's the plan. I think the people who are really, truly ideologically against that are more like the, it would be the constitutional people, maybe the ACLU might have something to say about that, <laughs> well, <laughs> the we'll right see. to free speech. And also, the, yeah, the question of how do we convince fascists? How do you, when you go to high school with someone and you're still Facebook friends and you start seeing them go down this weird path and it's starting to get to a point where it's not just quirky, but is actually kind of horrifying. What's our path as individuals, as world peacekeepers to get them back on the right track? I think these are the questions that we need to think about going forward. I think we need to take the emotional roots of their positions seriously while not taking their positions seriously necessarily, but, but taking them as people seriously and trying to figure out, hey, you, why do you think this? And maybe there's a more harmonious way for us to figure this out. Maybe sounds idealistic to a lot of people, but fascists are human beings and have human beings aren't known to change their minds sometimes. So I think that's a project that is always worth working on because any single person you can convert from fascism to anything less horrifying is not just a loss for fascism, it's a gain for whichever less horrifying ideology they move to. Just killing them is a loss for fascism, but not a gain to anything else. So, mm. One pound of your enemy's supplies is worth 10 pounds of your own. Art of war. Art of war. Uh, also, only attack when you have the high ground. Other really important advice for this culture war. All right. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. It's been a gas. We love you. Uh, <laughs> did you cringe because like gas chambers? Or I something? did. Yeah. I it's funny. Because well, I mean, we could say it's been a gas in an episode where we didn't spend a lot of time talking about <laughs> neo Nazis, but in this context, it's... yeah, I didn't even think about it. It just was like an old timey thing that popped into my head it's been a slice everyone yeah it's been a slice oh but Um, the pizza parlor murder uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
It's been a blast. If you want us to answer your question, like we answered this brain cancer question on the show today, go to our website. Underneath the contact form on there, there's a button you can press to leave us a voicemail. I'm also on our Facebook page. You can leave a voicemail through, uh, we got a tab there. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Uh, Would you like to send us a donation of $6 a month? It would make a huge difference to us producing the show. And it will actually give you access to bonus content. We're striving to release two full-length bonus episodes every single month. They're not even bonus episodes. They're just straight-up episodes. Yeah, the episode just before this one, episode 119, is subscriber-only. So that means that most of you listening to this haven't heard it because you are not a subscriber and if you want to hear it, you got to sign up. Yeah, and I thought it was I thought it was really funny when I listened to it. Actually, a friend of mine told me that he cried laughing listening to it. So totally worth the six bucks a month. And it makes a huge difference for us. It's it's one of the jobs that Aaron is juggling right now is the official seriously wrong editor. And he's paid out of that Patreon fund. You can also donate by PayPal or Bitcoin on our website. And that's just as good. Um, so, yeah, the recommended donation is six dollars a month. It makes a huge difference. Thank you very much. Someone please tell me what to think Someone please tell me what to think Someone please tell me what to think What to think Next time on Seriously Wrong, Aaron drives a car down a street crowded with Sean's, killing three and wounding 14. A great tragedy and loss of life of Sean's and going to have to commemorate that and I'm going to have to atone for it.